Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You know, success is about maximizing your potential, and it's very easy in sport to quantify success by winning and losing. And... Tennis is an interesting sport because you, irrespective of how good you are, if you're number one in the world, you still lose a lot. There's still only one winner in the Grand Slams, men's and women's. There are 254 losers. There's only two winners. And so when you then take that question to another sport, so how do you quantify success in football? Is it representing your country and, or is it winning the World Cup? And likewise, if you go into other professions and you say, well, if you were the fourth best lawyer in the world or you were the fourth best banker in the world, you'd be doing all right. Hello and welcome to the Life Lessons podcast with me, Simon Mundy. This podcast has a simple mission to have discussions that reveal something important about life and how best to live it. My guests range from the biggest sporting names on the planet through to neuroscientists, philosophers, psychologists and world-renowned thinkers. We talk about things like how to skillfully relate to uncomfortable thoughts and feelings, the power of acceptance and psychological flexibility, how to get your circadian rhythms in sync to feel your best, right through to the nature of reality. These conversations and the bite-sized episodes have the power to change your life. What does success actually mean? One narrative that's often trotted out is that it's all about winning. But isn't that a bit simplistic? Here to help me tackle this one is Tim Henman, a man so popular at Wimbledon that he had a hill named after him. Of course, the championships get underway this week and I'll be there working alongside Tim, which is why I wanted to revisit this conversation. Now, Tim reached the semifinals at the Wimbledon Championships on four occasions and he was ranked as high as fourth in the world despite not having been tipped for great things as a junior tennis player. And yet, there are still those who think Henman failed on account of the fact that he didn't go on and win Wimbledon. But that is an example of this sort of arbitrary, even lazy, black and white thinking that can trap people, and so I want to challenge it. It's always a pleasure chatting to Tim, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Tim Henman, how are you? I'm very good, thanks, Simon. How are you? I'm good, thank you, Tim. I'm thrilled to have you on the podcast. As you know, tennis is very much my favourite sport, so I'm going to have to rein in some of my geekier urges. Don't do that. I'll have to, otherwise we'll be here all day. <laughs> but we, we will talk about some of the highlights of your career, as well as extract some of the lessons that you've learned and that others can take from things like your attitude and your outlook and the way you've reflected back on your career and what you achieved. And I do think it is, um, it's fertile ground for broader life lessons. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, yes. I, I, I think when, um, you know, when I reflect all the way back to probably when I 
first picked up a racket and I probably don't remember much of that. I was only two and a half or three. At those early stages, that's where your dreams are first dreamt, if that makes sense. And, and um, you know, then for my mum to take me to Wimbledon the first time when I was six and, and see Beyond Ball play, that was, as I've said before, that was when I made my one and only career decision that, that I wanted to be a professional tennis player. And, and you know, there's no doubt that it's, um, you know, it's a long journey. There's um, a, a journey of many highs and many lows. Um, but, uh, you know, I never... I, I've never said I've had a real job and, and uh, I think when you can have um, you know, a hobby that you're so passionate about of, uh, it makes you makes you feel very fortunate. I'd agree with that, Tim. You haven't had a proper job, but I'd also say we're all the richer for it. <laughs> now, um, you were born into something of a tennis dynasty, into a good tennis stock. I know your mother played tennis to a high level. I know she played at Wimbledon. And then, of course, there's the legend of your great-grandmother, the first woman to serve overarm at the championships. I believe your great-grandfather or grandfather played at Wimbledon too. So, yeah, you do come from good tennis stock, don't you? Yes. I mean, my mum played in the national championships that used to be at Wimbledon. My grandparents my grandparents both played at Wimbledon and my great-grandmother, as you mentioned, played at Wimbledon as well. Um, so... There's no doubt that's an interesting story. Um, it certainly wasn't the reason why I played the game. I, I you know, got two older brothers that uh, played a lot of sport growing up. My dad um, has always been very keen on, on lots of different sports, participated a lot. So growing up, yeah, we two older brothers. We lived in a, in a village with a, with a garden. And so, you know, after school, it was, whether it was rugby, football, cricket, hockey or tennis, there was always a bat, bat and a ball on the go. But I, I played all of them, but I played tennis because I loved it the most. And, and I was probably, you know, that was the sport that I was best at. Um, so, yes, there is a, a sort of tennis history there, but it, it never really influenced me. I wouldn't necessarily say I was so aware of it at a young age. No. And you were picked up by the Slater squad yeah. at an early age. Uh, the Slater squad operated outside the jurisdiction of the Lawn Tennis Association, the national governing body. It was set up by David Lloyd of David Lloyd Leisure and Tennis Club fame. And I know you were a late bloomer and were small compared to a lot of your peers growing up as a teenager. Yeah. And I also know that one of the top coaches at the Slater squad, as well as David too, in fact, recognised that one of your greatest strengths was between your ears, was your attitude. So looking back, can you recognize that you did have the mental aptitude to make the most of your abilities from a very young age? Yes, I think it's the, the simple answer to that question. And, um, you know, if I elaborate on that a little bit, um, I, I was keen on my tennis. I was playing a lot growing up and then when I was about nine, maybe 10, I used to go to the David Lloyd Center. It was the first one that he had built at that stage, David Lloyd Heston. And uh, I used to have a lesson for an hour every week with Oni Parron, who was a Kiwi who played um, in the sort of early mid 70s, made quarters of Wimbledon. And, um, you know, at that time, David Lloyd was thinking of setting up a, a tennis academy. He had never been particularly impressed with um the LTA's equivalent and uh he he was keen to try and you know produce some world-class British players and that's when he set up the 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 academy um Jim Slater uh who was a sort of city financier at the time he had done something similar with chess believe it or not back in the day when he felt that there should be a lot better British chess players when I think it was being dominated by the Russians and and um he he transformed chess in this country and, and they, they linked up to try and do something similar with tennis. So that was, that was when I was 11 and, and we went to read school as, as part of that sort of Slater, Slater scheme. And, um, that was a, you know, massively important part of my development. I, I was one of the best juniors in the country at the age of sort of 10, 11, 12. And then, you know, physically I was, was a late developer. So, um, you know, I think in juniors, sometimes your results are dictated a lot by your your the physicality your strength and and speed and and being a late developer my my results were not particularly good at the age of you know 15 16 17 but you know when you go back to that attitude you know I was 
I was obsessed with the game. You know, I was so passionate about it. I, I wanted to to practice and train all day, every day. I, I, I just loved it. And, and so, you know, that motivation, that hunger and desire, that competitive instinct was something that, that I always had. And, and there was no doubt that, you know, through the difficult times, my, my development through the junior game was not plain sailing. You know, I certainly uh, needed that resilience to, to keep bouncing back. And that was, so the resilience was simply born of a passion and a love for the sport. Yes, um, but there's not many people more uh, competitive than my dad um, <laughs> to this day. Um, and so, yeah, you know, it's, it's a combination of obviously the way I thought and, and approach things, but also, you know, there must be something ge genetic in there that, you know, my dad was a good sportsman and, and was highly competitive. I was the youngest of of three boys and yeah um you know i had to fight pretty hard to to keep up yes yeah, the classic youngest sibling story often the ones that go on and succeed but in terms of the slater squad because who else was in this so there was james bailey who won the australian open juniors and i think 93 yeah jamie delgado who won the orange bowl so the junior world championships essentially and i think that was what maybe 92 yeah and Mark Moreso, and you weren't seen as the pick of the bunch, were you? You were, yes, they recognised you had this fight and that you were going to grow, but they had you down as a double specialist even, didn't they? Um, not exactly, but no, you're, you're, you're right. There was James Davidson as well, who's um, who's now been working on the tour as, as a coach, um, who was part of the scheme. No, I, d I don't think I was, you know, certainly not the best. And, uh, you know, there were... You know, talent comes in many different forms, and and uh, yeah, you know, I think there in terms of the sort of natural uh, gift of the game, you know, Mark Moreso was probably the the best of the bunch at that stage. Um, but that's, I think, that's one of the challenges of of tennis to this day is that there are, you know, there are three attributes: there's technical, physical, and mental, and you cannot be um, devoid of of any of those. And and they develop at, at different speeds. And and so, you know, I had a great attitude. Um, you know, my game was was coming along. I was improving all the time. But, you know, physically I was I was probably, you know, held back against bigger or uh stronger juniors at that time. When you were with the Slater squad, if someone had said to you, Okay, what are your goals? What do you want to go on and achieve? What do you expect to be able to go on and achieve as a senior player? What what would you have said? If I if someone had asked you that, I'd say 15, 16. Um, I think at that time, and, and this is, this is, I think, an interesting uh, part of my journey. I think at the age of 18, 19, when I'd come out of the junior game, I was starting to play the bottom rung of, of um, professional tennis. It was satellites back in the day. Um, you know, if you'd have said to me at that stage, right here, if you sign on the dotted line for the next 10 years, you, you're going to be ranked from you know, 75 to 100 in the world, you'll play in the four Grand Slams, um, you'll compete on the main tour for the next decade. You know, I would have bitten both arms off and and, um, and and signed immediately. And, you know, then as my game developed and all of a sudden at the end of 95, I think it was, you know, I broke into the top 100. So I was 21 at that time, finished the year 99. Then you think, you know, wow, things are really progressing. And, you know, what's the next goal? Is it top 75, top 50? And then, you know, as that year progressed, I had even better results. I think I finished 29 in the world, I'm slightly guessing. And then all of a sudden, you know, you've broken into the top 50 and, you know, you're, you're close to the top 30. And, and then you think, well, could I get to the top 20? And, and you do, you, you continue to raise the bar. You, you want to um, you know, try and get higher and higher, but you, you, you don't know where you're going to get to. And, and so that's where certainly I'm able to look back at this whole journey from the age of, well, you could say from the age of three to 33, but when, when I left school at 16 to 33 and, and then look back at, at all the things that I was able to achieve, hmm. um, you know, that, that's, that's how you quantify success. You know, success is about maximizing your potential. And, totally. and uh, you know, I looked back and was able to reach four in the world and six slam semis. I won 11 times on the tour and, and won Olympic silver. You know, that's that's as good as I was I was meant to be. So, 
you know, there. I, th- I think there are times because the country that I, I live in with Wimbledon being that event, you know, suddenly you, you were judged either you win or win that tournament or not. And, and, you know, having been in the semis four times, um, you know, people sometimes would say, well, he didn't win Wimbledon, so he wasn't a success, but I'm not, not sure I'd agree with that. Typical understatement, not sure you would agree with that. I mean, it's absolute nonsense. And actually, this is why I'm really happy to talk to you about this stuff, because because it is narratives like that that are nonsensical. And that's why I was saying, you know, when you were 15, 16, because they, well, let's take another player. Let's someone like uh, Richard Gasquet, who was seen as the, the, the great hope of French tennis and the pressure that would go on someone like that. And, and yes, he's had a good career, but he hasn't won a Masters. I don't think he's really sort of broken the top five or, or certainly top four even. And you know, like you say, people develop at different ages and it's about getting the most out of yourself. And there's absolutely no question that you, that you did that but narratives just just run away with themselves because i mean when you really burst on the scene at around that time britain's at wimbledon were going out in the second round third round maybe fourth yeah very occasionally with jeremy bates but before you the level of expectation was on the floor yeah and people forget that yeah i think that's um i think that's their comment and, and but again everybody's journey is different. So why is, why is Jeremy Bates relevant to me? Mm. You know, I, I think then when, when you go back to sort of talking about it's slightly philosophical about success, mm. it's very easy in sport to, to sort of quantify success by winning and losing. Yeah. And, you know, tennis is an interesting sport because you, irrespective of how good you are, if you're number one in the world, you still lose a lot. Yeah, there's still only one winner, you know, in, in the Grand Slams, you know, the men's and women's, there are 254 losers. There's only two winners. And, and, and so when you then take that question to another sport, you know, so how do you quantify success in football? Mm. How do you quantify success in cricket? You know, there's no world ranking, you know, is it representing your country and, you know, or is it winning the World Cup? Mm. And likewise, if you go into other, if you go into other professions, and you say, well, if you were the fourth best lawyer in the world, or you were the fourth best banker in the world, you'd be doing all right. But you know, in sports, I think it's 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 way too easy just to 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 look at it as as defined by winning and losing. Totally agree. And like and like you say, you can't even compare yourself to Jeremy. Everyone's on their own journey, and it's that old cliche. Ultimately you're only competing with yourself. And it's clear that you feel like you absolutely got the most out of your game, that you put the absolute maximum into it. From where I am as a tennis fan, that's the way I see it as well. So really it's winner, loser, success or not. It's about making the most of yourself for yourself. It's an intrinsic thing, isn't it? Rather than an external approval thing, wouldn't you say? Yeah. And I remember I didn't didn't uh, necessarily have a lot of of media training, but I, I remember being told very early on, you know, when you're when you're in interviews, you know, never talk about giving one hundred and ten percent because it's it's just not possible. Um, and and so likewise, when you when you appreciate this is where when you talk about commitment as an athlete and and uh, you know going about your your job to to maximize your potential. There are no gray areas. You're either in or you're out. And so therefore, 99% effort and application not good enough. It's 100% or nothing at all. So then when you you break down, you know, my game and, and the way that I practice, the way that I trained, my, my schedule, my effort in my matches, I always gave 100%. And so that's where when you add it all together, all the, these pieces of the puzzle, and when you try your best, you can't do more than that. That's why... You know, when people talk about players in 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 uh, in lots of sports, you hear people talking about overachieving. Well, overachieving is not not possible because that's to do with your potential. You know, if your potential is a hundred percent and you give a hundred percent, then you'll be successful. You can't say, well, give a hundred and ten percent. It's not possible. So therefore, you know, in my mind, you can't you can't overachieve, but you can certainly underachieve. Yeah. And that, I find that interesting around where sort of people set goals. So if you had set a goal, let's say, as a 15 or 16 year old of, oh, I want to be in the top 100, 
to some degree, you would have been potentially limiting yourself. So it's about really exploring what your potential is. Exactly. Exactly. It's it's about exploring that. I, th- I think that the, the, the top 100 narrative is about playing the main tour. You know, if you're top 100, you're going to be getting into the Grand Slams. You're going to be playing in the biggest and best tournaments. And that's why, you know, that gets thrown out there. And it's it's a good it's a good benchmark. But certainly you wouldn't want to say, well, if I get to the top 100, then that's that's it and as i said earlier on in this conversation you always want to be trying to raise the bar higher you know think about different areas where you can improve your game and and um you know so so when you are 16 17 it's you know it's it's easier to quantify sort of your 100 meter sprinter you know if you're running 100 meters in 14 seconds and you're saying well you know i've got to run it in 10 that's that's a long way off. You know, if you're 16, 17, just left school and you're losing in the early rounds of junior ITF tournaments, you're talking about being a, the top 100 player, tennis player in the world. It's a long way off. So they're all, all you know, benchmarks. And, and I do always think it's very important to, to set yourself goals. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, not have them as a glass ceiling because see where you can go, but tick them off as you go on the way. Anyway, right, let's go back a bit because I want to pick through a couple of bits. Now, listen, yeah, I, I, I want to apologize first because I've shared this anecdote with you before and, and, and I <laughs> promise I am never going to do it again. All right. This is the last time I'll ever do it. And you've humored <laughs> me every time. But I've got to, I've got to tell us because it's one of my favorite anecdotes, which is that so I actually met you on holiday before you were seen as the British number one. Yeah. And at that time, Jamie Delgado was the great British hope. He'd won the Orange Bowl. And you humoured me that whole time. Yeah. I just spent all the time saying, Tim, tell me more about Jamie. You know, what's his game like? <laughs> I was fascinated. And it then, was very good. <laughs> yeah. And you were incredibly graceful about it. And I, I kicked myself that I didn't ever ask you to play because obviously I think later that year you won the, the Nationals. The next year, I think, or within a year or two, you beat Greg in the final of the Senior Nationals. And then before we know it, you, you're playing Kafelnikov in 1996 but for me that just summed it up that there I was sat next to you know the, the best male British tennis player since really since Fred Perry or certainly since John Lloyd and there I was banging on about someone else which just says about the the difference in the journeys anyway I had to share that yeah and I don't think you were wrong I mean Jamie you know is a great friend of mine I've known him since you know I was probably 12 or 13 and he was 9 or 10 mm-hmm. and you know it was it was phenomenal how how good he was age 13 14 and uh you know when when someone is a year younger in juniors that's quite a lot when they're two years younger that's a massive amount if they're three years younger i mean you sort of feel like you should be barely talking to the person but <laughs> you know he, he was feeding me pretty comfortably at that stage and wow. and again that, you know he just says it all isn't it yeah. well but he was he was probably you know more physically developed than me was stronger than me and and um you know, his, his game was developing at, um, you know, certainly a different speed. But uh, for me, as I said about my brothers, two older brothers growing up, environment is so important. Yeah. And that's why the Slater scheme was very important and was so good for me as an environment. Because I was practicing with better players all the time. You know, I'd look at Jamie or I'd look at Mark Resso or, you know, whoever it was and say, wow, they do that better than me. And I need to improve that, and and um, and so that that no doubt played an important part in my development. When he won the Orange Bowl, did that increase your belief about what was possible for yourself? No, I don't think it did. I mean, it just wasn't. I'd never played in the Orange Bowl. I wasn't probably good enough to get into the form. I, I did play again. The sort of perspective I played Orange Bowl once in my last year of juniors when I was so when I was seventeen, turning eighteen. And I lost, it was played on green clay in Miami and I lost 6-1, 6-2, first round. And likewise, you know, in 1992, I played the junior event at Wimbledon for the first time and I lost, ironically, 6-2, 6-1, first round. So in 1992, I went from, you know, I I went from winning three games in the first round of the junior event to four years later beating the French Open champion um, in the main event, getting to the quarterfinals. And that, again, emphasises how everybody's journey is different but also your your improvement um sort of graph goes in 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 different gradients and and so 
you know, mine had, had bottomed out a bit, uh, sort of 16, 17. And then suddenly, you know, 18, 19, as I got stronger and, you know, my, my, the physicality of my speed and my strength suddenly transformed my game. Then that was where the upward traje trajectory was enormous. Before we talk 96, quick one. There is a great lesson in 95. Um, obviously, yeah. you've got that fantastic record of being the first person disqualified from Wimbledon for smacking a ball, unintentionally hitting a ball goal in the yeah. face. But the way you dealt with it was fantastic. And this, I think, is a real lesson in responsibility. So obviously, you and Jeremy Bates were, were defaulted. No no one yeah. was happy about that. The umpire, no, no one was. No one wanted it, but it was, just no. one, it was unavoidable. And then the next day, up you rock. Big gleaming smile, bunch of flowers for the ball girl. So you completely took responsibility and really sort of won people back over. Did did that experience teach you anything? Did you learn anything from that? Did that help you at all in any way? Yeah, no doubt. Two things. The the first thing was I remember I was sharing a flat with Andrew Richardson, who was best man at our wedding, who yeah. you know was same age as me. I grew up playing tennis with him from the age of eleven. And we were, we were sharing a flat in Wimbledon Village. And, and the next morning, after I got disqualified, he went out and bought all the newspapers, mainly the tabloids. And um, and I remember the back page of The of the Sun, because we were playing Jeff Tarango, which is kind of ironic. You think what happened. disqualified that. He then walked off court two days later. Uh, the back page of the, the Sun, the headline was, he hit it so hard it could have killed her, which oh, amazing. Which even by the tabloids, even by the tabloid standard, that was a pretty severe exaggeration. <laughs> but I remember reading that thinking, wow, that is just so much garbage. I will never read a newspaper again while I was playing. And I, I could count on, you know, probably two hands how many times I read the papers for the rest of my career. And the other thing was having been disqualified, being the first player, a British player, to be disqualified in 125 years at Wimbledon, I remember sort of saying to myself, wow, I'm going to have to have some fairly decent results to make sure that people don't remember this. And um, and so there was there was a little bit of a, I guess, a motivating factor there. That's amazing to yeah really recognize early the hyperbole of particularly the tabloids and yeah. And not not getting swept away by people's judgments, like you no, know, and, and I'll tell you one other thing that that again was um, I didn't know it at the time, but was evident throughout my whole career. I, I had great people around me, and and that's first and foremost, you know, was my parents, um, you know, my coach, my agents, you know, IMG who still look after me to this day. I didn't have a big group. I don't. I didn't never liked a big group of people, but I had, you know, Billy Knight, who was in charge of British tennis at that time, was 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 a huge influence, and and I had great people around me to support me. You know, I'll say keep my feet on the ground, but they, I don't think they needed to do that really. But yeah, in in the in the difficult times to support you and encourage you and and. Um, you know, in the good times to keep you working hard. So, so that was, that was definitely important when I got disqualified. Yeah. So, th and that's about getting advice and counsel from the people that count and disregarding the, the, the noise that you hear that isn't so necessary. And I think Alex Ferguson spoke about that. Uh, I watched him in a documentary when he spoke about the key thing is understanding which voices are important and which aren't. And yes, that comes back to that control and what you can control and what you can't. Yeah, there's no doubt there's no doubt that that is important you you want to block out all the different opinions but you have to remember that in the role as a tennis player you you end up being the sort of the chief executive of your business and so you've got to select those people you've got to select a coach you've got to select a, a physio a fitness trainer an agent or whatever and you know, I'd like to think that I, I I did a pretty good job of that, and 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 so therefore you're surrounding yourself with good people, the right people who are giving the the correct input. So, um, you know, those are important decisions, and not always easy when you're, 
you know, you're very young. Right, let's fast forward 12 months. So there I was, guess where I was watching it? David Lloyd's house, right? 96, you're up, you're up against Kifelnikov, right? And like I said, the, the, before you came along, the, the, a lot of second round, third round defeats, Jeremy reaching the fourth, and a lot of five-set heroic defeats as well. I think of Chris Bailey, yeah. Wilkinson, Petch, Bates as well. And so you were 3-5 down in the final set against Yevgeny Kafelnikov, who just won the French Open. He'd beaten Sam Press in the semi-final, so bang in form. And you're serving a stay-in. And I, and I actually just watched it a little bit earlier today on YouTube. And, and you could see there's that same thing of, here's going to be another heroic British five-set defeat that we can celebrate and be, oh, he was so close, maybe next time. And and I, I what I didn't realise, I forgot, was you, you missed a sitter of a smash at 15.30 to go 15.40 yeah. down. <laughs> Uh, but then you pulled out two aces, um, held that game, broke the next two, uh, and won. And for me, it, it reminds me a little bit, um, that match of, and some people might think this is an odd parallel, but when England won the Rugby World Cup in 2003, because what I noticed in myself on both occasions was this feeling of, oh no, here we go again. And then, boom, oh no, it, it doesn't have to be that way. And suddenly yeah. the glass ceiling got, got broken. So, I mean, in terms of, that match and that tournament. So reaching the quarterfinals, beating a Grand Slam champion like that, did did that shatter, you know, or, or change your own beliefs around what was possible? And did you notice that ripple out into what other people expected too? Well, well, two things. Um, I, I was, you know, by '96, I was I was playing some good tennis. You know, I was yeah, I was obviously, you know, I wasn't relying on wild cards to get into the event. Um, so I, you know, I was pretty confident with my game, but there's no doubt that that day my life changed. And and when you then, when I then go into the sort of the minutiae of the match, up two sets to love, you know, nothing to lose. Suddenly, lots to lose. Kafelnikov plays better. When I'm down five three in the fifth, I'm thinking to myself, I have to make him serve it out. You know, there's no, we know that it's never easy serving matches out. And, you know, the crowd have been phenomenal that day. Um, amazing atmosphere. So when I'm down 1540, I'm kind of thinking to myself, you idiot, you've got to at least make him serve for it. And so that's where, you know, I, I, I was very aggressive. I'm just going to, you know, go for my shot. And, you know, it, it's, it's, it's having that commitment to, then put the score aside to say, you know, this is the way I want to execute these points. And when you look at the last four games, um, you know, I didn't do a lot wrong. So, so from being, you know, I, and I, th I think psychologically, I um, subconsciously rather, you know, I didn't want to be another. I was, I was a lot better than just a, you know, a, a plucky British loss at Wimbledon, and and um, you know, so then to turn that around so quickly. Um, was a huge, huge win. And then, you know, the way that the draw opened up because I had to play then two Brits, which yeah. you might have thought could have been, you know, could have been a little bit tricky. But um, I think with all due respect, I was just a lot better than Danny Sapsud and Luke Milligan. So, um, you know, I beat them pretty comfortably. And then fourth round, I've got to play Gustafsson, which again is a is a is a good draw. It's a good opportunity, but um, you know the momentum and the the whole vibe for me around the event and the atmosphere was was like nothing I'd ever experienced because it was just um, you know going on to centre court and and feeling feeling so comfortable and confident, but having that support and just reveling in it. It was it was amazing. It was just. It was it was so much fun. I, I just you know people people talk about oh god the pressure and the expectation and the crowd. I'm like just bring it on. It was it was unbelievable. Oh, see that that's a fantastic way of looking at it. Rather than pressure and threat, it's you saw it as excitement and thrill. Pressure's all self inflicted. Yeah. So if you walk on court with a mindset, wow, you know, there's fifteen thousand here and there's fifteen thousand on the hill and there's 15 million on TV and they're all expecting you to win, you know, you, you'll, you'll put yourself under so much pressure you won't be able to play. Whereas I was going on court thinking, wow, this is my favourite court, my favourite surface. 
I've got the best support in the world. How good's this? You know, yeah. uh, that just shows the the power of framing it. Then, it's yeah, the that, way you perceive things, isn't it? Well, it's it's the way you know. There's lots of ways of of talking about it. You know, we, we've heard people talking about the chimp on your shoulder, and you've got to keep that chimp quiet. You know that my chimp wasn't able to speak because I was just you know enjoying it so much. Yeah, your chimp was excited, was 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 thrilled. But I interested what you said there about you know you wanted to make him serve it out. So you were forget the score, be present, uh, and you know play, uh, get on the front foot. So really, that's like playing according to your values, being brave and and do playing as you intend to be, um, or well, as you want to, as, as you would in any moment. And that can be applied in any area of life. I suppose that's what I'm getting at. Is you, you know, it, in sport, when you're an attacking player, you want to. You want to play points on your own terms. You want to be, um, you know, I want to be dictating. I want to be aggressive. I don't want to, I want to be proactive rather than reactive. And that's much easier to do on grass, certainly in the conditions that we were playing in in 1996. Is that an attitude, right? And this might sound a bit of a left field one that can be applied just in life generally, you know, doing things on your own terms. Um, irrespective of the noise that's going on around you. I mean, the old sport as metaphor for life, tennis as a metaphor for life type thinking. I, th- I think so. And I, I think, you know, structure in your life is really important. You know, having a plan, whether it's around, you know, exercise or your diet or whatever it may be, communicating with family and friends, the structure is is really important. And, you know, there's a lot more focus on mental health these days. I think that's all interconnected. So, you know, when you get back to the way you want to perform on a tennis court, it's dictated, you know, by your by your mind. So the way you, I mean, it can be influenced by the way your opponent plays as well. But you've got to set up set out with a strategy and 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 try and make it happen and and take responsibility for it and not be in you know, know what you can control and know what you can't. And you, for example, you couldn't control yeah. the the pages of the papers you couldn't control what people were saying about the fact you know when you lost semi-finals or whatever it's it's focus on mm. the opinions that matter what you can control the work you can put in and, and those kind of things yeah that's right and and again my my personality is um you know my my families and my wife's we you know we're not we're not interested in you know attention away from these types of things so it, it was never a sort of fame game so what was written positive or negative was just never interested me so you know that I think that helped me you know deal with the the spotlight because you know during that month it was um you know it was it was it was a lot of fun but it was it was pretty intense I, I think it was a different world that we lived in there was no social media so it was you know the written press it was tv and radio and and that you know Wimbledon was was a big story yeah it really was absolutely i can still picture the back page of the 2001 i think it had you with the tiger's <laughs> face on it uh you know tim the country expects or something like that but i think that is an interesting attitude because a lot of people these days do set out wanting fame which is just you know approval on a mass scale but i think you know it shows with your journey let's say because there, there has been a bit of a narrative around you choked in the semi-finals, which you know, as someone who understands tennis, is nonsense. You came up against Sampras twice. Even Isovic just had the uh, the wind in his sails and with, with that serve, and and obviously the way Hewitt's game matched up against yours. But it's if you did live for fame and approval, you can't control the narratives that come along because in in your case, people might say, even though you've debunked this idea of overachieving, but people might say that you did that in the in your career, or you certainly maxed it out. Yet still, people will be like, oh, no, we'll find fault. So relying on fame or, or seeking fame and seeking approval like that, it's, I mean, it's a fool's errand, really. Yeah, I, I, no, I'm not a person that sort of looks back a great deal. But um, certainly when I retired from the sport, I, I was you know, unbelievably content. It was the right time for me to stop. I wasn't getting any better. You know, I was struggling a little bit with my back. And, you know, we just had our third child. And so, you know, the timing of that was absolutely spot on. Mm-hmm. But then I was able to reflect on on everything that I had achieved. 
and you know things that I hadn't achieved, but was you know completely you know content, completely delighted and proud of of my whole career because I I I know that I got everything out of it. I got a hundred percent out of it. So if there are other people that disagree with that, that's fine. I don't I don't. <laughs> it's not going to change the way I feel about it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I I just think that then if you want to have that discussion, then you've got to say, well, if there's the bar, if I fail, how many successful people are out there? Yeah. It's not going to be many. <laughs> Absolutely. That ability then of you to be so intrinsically motivated to really just value the opinion of, of the important people around you and then how that played out in terms of your how easy you found it transitioning into retirement. Do you know where that comes from? And how would you encourage someone to develop that in themselves? You know, a young person growing up now. Yeah, I, I think for, you know, for me personally, it's, it's, it's who I am. It was probably part of my upbringing. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a level-headed type of person that, you know, when things were going great, um, I, I didn't, you know, get carried away. I wasn't arrogant or big-headed or, or, or thought I was, you know, any better than anyone else type of thing. But likewise, when, when things were were going badly, a bad run of form or injuries, you know, I'm, I'm, I was never a type of person to feel sorry for myself. So I've always been on a, a pretty even keel. And, you know, again, that that there are people that are much more volatile and it's much more of a roller coaster but um as i said i've I've always been very honest to myself i have never you know sort of tried to be someone i'm not uh, and i wouldn't want to be type of thing so um and again i think that that narrative is part of the people around you my family have always been the most important thing you know that's you know our health and 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 that perspective that it, it is a game at the end of the day you know it doesn't mean that you know, this is where, again, we've, we've, we've been so fortunate with the role models we've got in tennis right now. And, you know, there's this sort of perception that to be the best, you've got to be, you know, a horrible person and you've got to have this killer instinct. And yes, you've got to work hard and yes, you've got to be very motivated and determined to win. But when you look at Federer and Nadal, I would say they are the two best ambassadors in all of sport and you won't meet two more humble grounded decent human beings and and i think that's where you know they can they can teach a lot of people a lot of different things around values absolutely and i i I keep coming back to humility as such an important value Uh, did you along throughout your career were there big names or were there people who did start believing their own hype and did it come at a cost to them without naming names? Oh, I'm sure, you know, you know, someone like Agassi, you know, he, um, you know, is a good friend of mine and, and we, we, lots of us understand his journey, but, um, you know, I'm sure there were times where he, you know, was, was pretty off the rails and, um, you know, had some highs and lows and, but that's, that's, you know, part of life, it's, we, we are allowed to make mistakes and it's, it's how you respond for those mistakes. And, and there will be, you know, plenty of others. And, you know, a, a good example, I think now relevant now at a, at a different level is Dan Evans. You know, I, I have a lot of respect for, you know, he's, he's made some bad decisions. He recognizes those decisions. He's accepted responsibility yeah and he's you know in a in a in a really good place and and really getting the best out of himself and that's another great lesson um that you know you you might make some bad decisions along the way but you can back you can bounce back and and um yeah yeah, yeah. you know i i've uh, enjoyed watching his progress totally right last couple of things tim who was your best coach or what makes a great coach because you had people yeah. like Larry Stefanke, who's a lovely fella, Paul Anacone, David Felgate. What makes a great coach? And if you had to pick one, yeah, they they all had different things that were very very important at different times. And you know, David Felgate, I started working with him with no professional ranking, and you know, started off in the satellites, and you know, for him to 
really instill, I think, the discipline and, and a mental toughness around my game. I, I had, you know, a competitive drive and hunger to work hard, but, you know, bringing a discipline to my game shot after shot, point after point was massively important. Um, I think Larry Stefanke um, really made me understand my strengths more, um, my athletic ability, my my net game, how I could impose myself more, put more pressure on my opponents um, and, and really play on my own terms. And, you know, I think with Paul Anico, with his his experience and knowledge, you know, helping to, to really piece that all together, which, you know, probably, you know, was a reflection of how well I played in 2004. So, so you know, to answer your question more directly, um, I would say Paul Anakone was the best coach I've ever worked with. Nice. Right. And, and then... But that's that's no that's certainly no disrespect no. to the other two. No, no, no. And, I mean, all of their CVs are great, but Paul's is, is, is quite something. And then we've talked about personal journeys and you know, everyone sort of goes on different trajectories, progresses at different speeds. So, you know, you don't want to write yourself off at any point. But equally, I think that people do raise the bar in a way to help other people. You sowed the seed, I think for the success that came later with Andy. You did raise that bar, that expectation, um, in such a way that enabled Andy to go on. Now, I'm not saying you take responsibility for his win, <laughs> but but you, that, that was a factor in his, in his ability to go on and, and reach the very top, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. Um, and again, it comes back, a little bit to environment and you know the environment doesn't necessarily mean that you know i'm practicing and training with him every day but the environment of a mindset that you know this is the healthy competition that goes with you know players from the same country so for, for british tennis me you know having been in in the top five in the world and you know done x y and z that is no doubt going to be um within his psyche as it were yeah, yeah. and and then you know being around whether it's practicing or davis cup or at tournaments or, or competing you know there's 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 no doubt that that's um you know important um sort of stepping stone and and so i i always enjoyed i, I think because we were i can't remember how many years older than i am but it's it's obviously quite a few it's probably 11 11 or 12 <laughs> I, I think that's where, if he'd have been closer in age, I think there would have been, it would have been a harder relationship because I think we've been more of rivals, as it were. But because we were so far apart and, and at different stages of our career, I always, you know, really enjoyed, you know, the time that we spent together, whether it was um, traveling and practicing and training. I mean, the matches were hard. Um I think they were hard first and foremost because I didn't like the the matchup in my game style. It's a bit like playing a better version of Hewitt. Um, but I've always been, you know, a massive supporter of Andy's and still speak to him pretty regularly. And and you know what he has gone on to achieve has has been, you know, in, incredible to to watch. Yeah, but you saved the seed, right? Let's just summarise that in terms in terms of lessons, then, Tim, because I do think. What I take from your story really is around that being in competition with ourselves, ultimately, not others. Yeah. Um, you know how we how we define ourselves as it's far too simplistic. This this winners and losers because yeah. you know we're all losers, aren't we? It's you're a winner if you are really maximize or, or, or try basically try your best to put it put it really simply and yeah. then. And in terms of you, I mean, like you said, you're level-headed. You know, you've always seemed content and happy to me when I've when I've seen you. You obviously you moved into retirement pretty easily. So that intrinsic sense of self-worth, that in not needing external approval, that's a really valuable lesson. I think people can can learn from. Would you agree on on that sort of summary? Yeah, but but look, you know, first and foremost, I'm I'm very very fortunate. You know, I'm. Touch wood, I'm, you know, I'm healthy. My family, my wife, my kids, you know, my parents, my in-law, you know, my extended family, and we're, you know, we're we're very lucky. That's that's the most important thing, you know. With with my, you know, tennis life, that 
the psychology of that is it's about the process, not the outcome. You know, the, the outcome is almost a byproduct. If you get the process right and do everything you can, it's tough to argue with the um, with the outcome. And and so, you know, for me, I'm, you know, so content with with what I, you know, was able to achieve. Would I do things differently? Yes, in hindsight, I would have, you know, avoided matches that I got injured or, you know, I might have played a different schedule or, you know, I might have developed my game slightly different. But, but um, you know, that's hindsight. Um, you know, I, I, I look back and um, so proud of, of all the things that I, I did achieve. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Life Lessons podcast. If you want to get in touch, please drop me a line via my website, simonmundy.com or on social media at Simon Mundy. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.